Sometimes the most memorable stories we carry with us from military service were just the product of the branch of service we were in or the deployment we were on and the crazy stuff that happens when people with a mission and a common cause live in close quarters. And sometimes after our time in the service, we're lucky enough to find careers not too dissimilar to that with missions and with common cause for us to rally around. When we're lucky like that, we can continue to share stories of our shared history and experience and support one another through a bond that goes beyond the workplace. Jones Lang LaSalle and JLL's VetNet Business Resource Group brings you the Midwatch podcast in an effort to tell those stories and share that experience and build connections across generations of veterans at JLL and our broader community. And now the host, of the Midwatch podcast, Dan Ettinger. Everybody, it is time once again for another episode of the Midwatch podcast brought to you by Jones Lang LaSalle, JLL's VetNet BRG. Very pleased and excited to, uh, to have a special guest today. This is the first time we've connected, but uh, just Taking a look at uh, his background and resume, really impressed, and uh, I think he's going to bring a lot to the show. So, uh, Herman Bulls, thank you so much for uh, for taking the time today, and welcome to the show. Uh, happy to be here. Fantastic, and like I was saying, really credit to you. Looks like uh, you've just had a, a distinguished career. I'm going to be interested to hear your thoughts about uh, the business that, that we're in and uh, your perspective uh, on Jones Lang LaSalle and, and all that. But of course, first we start with learning a little bit about you and learning a little, a little bit about what, a, what appears to be just from a, a first look, a really distinguished uh, military career. So really excited to hear that. Maybe uh, first things first, though, could you tell us a little bit about uh, yourself, where you're at, a little bit about your family and, and some hobbies? Sure, Dan. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you for taking the responsibility to pull this together. Uh, it's very, very important. Number one, uh, hopefully some people out there, general interest will enjoy this, but more importantly, as we continue to support our veterans and everything they do, hopefully we'll attract someone new to, to Jones Lane LaFowl, or even more importantly, get someone that's already here an appreciation for what their veterans are doing and go sure. from there. So, Sir, thanks. so, uh, yeah. So my story, I got to tell you, I've been telling it a lot lately, uh, because <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm, I'm involved in, uh, uh, quite a few corporate boards and, uh, nonprofit boards. And obviously with everything that's going on in the world with the two pandemics we have today, of course, uh, COVID and the racism issues, mm -hmm. the racism has come up quite a bit. And I've been asked to, you know, provide a perspective, I should say, to many organizations that I'm involved with uh, within and obviously and also outside of JLL. And, and with that, um, a matter of fact, I had a uh, presentation on Friday to Harvard University uh, where they sure. had the majority of their senior management there and they had uh, guests from school, you know, like, like schools all over. And one of the things I did, for example, there, I've got a saying that who much is given, much is expected. And of course, I didn't invent that. But uh, I asked them because they wanted me to speak on those subjects. I said, do you have any historical colleges, universities invited? They said, no. I said, well, why don't we invite some? So that was, that's a, 
uh, a foresight to perhaps some of the things that I'll talk about today. But <clears throat> with that, I, I'm, I'm from Florence, Alabama. I'm the youngest of seven kids. And unfortunately, Dan, I never saw my dad because he was killed in a farm accident or an automobile accident in October of 1955. And I was born in February, 1956. Right. And he, he, um, you know, my, my mom, uh, again, six kids at the time with me, uh, on the way was there without a high school education at the time and with, you know, a tough road to hoe. And in the South, you know, people are very, very caring and giving. And they were like, uh, my mom's name is Lucy Bell. Hey, Lucy Bell, we can take a couple of kids here, et cetera, et cetera. But she said, nope, keeping my family, we're going to make this work. So she, Dan, had a, uh, started her career basically as a, a cook, a domestic. She sold insurance for Atlanta Light. And she did all of that up probably until I was about second or third grade. And then she went back, got her GED. And then went to a senior college to get her licensed practical nurse degree. And That's that crazy. allowed us to, you know, live a, uh, what I'll call a middle-class life. Uh, in essence, we moved from her farm that we still own to this day in Center Star, Alabama, down to Florence, Alabama. And then from there, you know, out of the seven kids, there are 11 degrees amongst those seven kids. And all of them finished college except one. And, uh, you know, everything from lawyers, nurses, and ethicists, accountants, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so quite a uh, success story, which I attribute to her. And True. then as far as me, you know, I, we moved from the farm down into the city, so to speak, in the seventh grade. And this was back in the uh, late 60s. And then in the 70s, when I went to high school, I was just very fortunate to blossom or bloom. I was the first black person to start at quarterback and, you know, desegregation started at mm -hmm. the high school there. And it was so funny. I had a, a news story that was done, oh, about three or four months ago about me and Coach K. Mm -hmm. And in that story, the reporter actually contacted my high school coach. And I didn't really know that. And the right. high school coach said that he actually caught uh, a little grief for starting me at quarterback in, you know, 1973 in the South, because, you know, the old adage was, you know, blacks aren't smart enough to play quarterback and et cetera, et cetera. But I had a, a, a very uh, lucky and distinguished high school career, played four sports, lettered in three of them. Uh, one year I played baseball and track and track. I had the school record in the high jump. Six three and a half, six feet three and a half inches, and kids hurdle that these days. But back then, yep. that was a big deal. Finished third in the state in that quarterback of the football team. I was president of the student council, and uh, you know just had a, a really good career. Played basketball as well, and had the opportunity to go to all the service academies and mm -hmm. chose West Point. There was something you know they recruited me for football. There was something very special about that. So uh, had that opportunity. And I think I was always a good athlete, but something in me told me I wasn't a great athlete. I had an opportunity. Right. I could have gone to Vanderbilt on a, on a uh, you know, they were going to, they put together something that almost was a full scholarship, uh, part athletic, part academic. And I just, Dan, decided to take that leap and do the West Point thing. And I'm just so glad I did. So 
as they say, the rest is history. Went to West Point, <clears throat> had opportunity to go to Ranger School as a cadet, mm-hmm. uh, was headed to infantry, and then I had a medical uh, disqualification due to hearing loss, but I was still able to later get my airborne wings. So, Dan, there I was, airborne ranger AG lieutenant, and uh, that was certainly a product differentiation, so to speak. And uh, the Army was very, very good to me because I met my wife, Iris, on my first assignment at Fort Dix, New Jersey. She was also in the military. And, you know, from Fort Dix, went to West Point, did some minority recruiting for about a year, came back to Fort Dix. Iris and I got married. After that, we went to Korea for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. I came back. We were both selected for graduate school. I was fortunate to go to Harvard Business School. My wife, Iris, went to Tufts. Then we went back to West Point, where I actually may have set a record. I taught three years full time while Iris was in the admissions. She did admissions work. And then I did my entire reserve duty. Uh, After West Point, we came to Washington, where I worked in the Pentagon for the Assistant Secretary for Financial Management. And then I left the active duty in 1989. And actually came to LaSalle Partners, which is the predecessor to Jones Line LaSalle, right, and right. stayed in the reserves and finally retired as a colonel in the reserves. So that's sort of my story. It got me up to JLL in 1989. <laughs> well, I am glad I was sitting down because that was significant. <laughs> a fa- fantastic <laughs> story. I, I didn't want to get too far away from uh, hearing you talk about your mom and how accomplished she was in, in, in the face of and in spite of, or however to say that, what she did to, to support her kids and her family by herself just prior to you being born. Can you put that into perspective? Somebody who was so, so important and did such an incredible job. What's, what's your perspective on what, what she did? Well, I, I think it perhaps makes me a better parent. I have three kids and three grandkids. Uh, but I think the thing about it is just her, her work ethic. And, you know, from the military, we, we obviously uh, have to have a work ethic there. And I think I just look back at what she did. But you know how it is, Dan. When you have a, 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 what some might see as an insurmountable task ahead of you, if you're motivated for the right reason, it's not insurmountable, right? Yeah, and, agree. And I think agree. for her, yeah, yeah. So, so she had the concept of family and, uh, you know, we may not have had a lot, but uh, what we did have was, uh, you know, character and work ethic. And, you know, I never missed a meal. Uh, so it wasn't, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't want to put this, you know, after because when you live on a farm, you never miss a meal, right? You grow it right. and, and, and you raise it. <laughs> so you get everything you want. And everybody around you is kind of in the same situation. So you don't have you know, I want this, I want that. And, you know, we didn't have electronics back then, right? So you get a bike and a pony, you're, you're on top of the world. <laughs> so there's no doubt that, you know, just seeing and recognizing. And remember, when you're going through this as a kid, you, you know, you know, yeah, we had a TV, but we had a TV with an antenna that you had to reach yep. out the window and turn the antenna. You don't probably even know about these things. And, uh, oh, I do. Vacuum I do. tubes and, and the TV. <laughs> So you don't really have it a lot to compare to. So you just take what you're given and then the work ethic you see around you. And, and that becomes part of your character, part of your makeup. What an inspiring uh, story. And I, I definitely want to come back to what you started out with, how organizations and because 
of the network that you're in, people are coming to you to talk about what's happening around us nowadays. But I'll, I'd like to come back to that towards the end, because the question is, what are you passionate about? And it sounds like that's definitely where your passion lies. I, and I don't know, you may have already said, said everything, but is there something about you that no one would guess? Mm, well, how about that? I was the, uh, after going to West Point, I played football for two years. I was, mm-hmm. uh, again, recruited as a quarterback, played on the freshman team, then moved to defensive back, uh, letter JV defensive back. But we had a guy named Lehman Hall, who was also my classmate, and he was partially starting as a freshman. And that's why Homer Smith, who was our head coach and okay. who recruited me. And the other person that recruited me was uh, Gary Steele. And some people probably know Sage still on ESPN, yeah, yeah. his daughter. You know, Gary and I are still close to this day. What I did, uh, because I had a, I also had a radio show in high school called Call mm-hmm. Capers, uh, where once a week we would, you know, interview school leaders and play songs, all that kind of stuff. So West Point used that really to recruit me as well. Say, hey, we got a radio station. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, awesome. and and I did, and I did get involved in it. Doing, I was a DJ and. Uh, when I stopped playing football, I stayed with the radio station on the sports, and I became the voice of Army Sports, WKDT 89.3 FM, The Rock. Oh, I heard you say so, it. When you said it right there, I could yeah, hear it in your voice. Yeah. So with that, I did play-by-play for uh, football, and I knew, I knew the plays, I knew the coaches, I knew the players. Uh, so that was kind of inside. And, you know, we probably had an audience of, you know, a thousand people, but that was okay right. because I tell you, I learned so much doing that and turn the TV off sometime and sit there and do the play by play and keep the tone going. That is really a skill. And I'm not saying I was good at it, but I think that helped particularly with my public speaking skills because you have to think quickly sure. on your feet and you go out and do things. So that was great. And then the other thing that it did, um, I also did Army basketball. And with that, we had a little Polish-sounding name coach there, mm-hmm. Mike Krzyzewski, better known as Coach <laughs> K. And so I got to know him. I've got a letter here now. Coach K, actually, I, I started, I've been an entrepreneur my entire life. So uh, I started a show at West Point. You know, they had Saturday Night Live. And the only night that I could get away to go do the show was Thursday night. So I said, okay, this is going to be Thursday night live. And it was a sports talk. It was a sports talk radio show. And I would do similar to what I did in high school. I would get, you know, athletes from all the teams to come mm-hmm. in and talk, talk that evening. And coach K actually called me up and asked to be on the show. <laughs> and uh, that's uh, when he won his 1,000th game, I've got it in my office here. I wrote him a note, hey, coach, congratulations. And yeah, it was great to have you on radio show. And he wrote me back tongue-in-cheek saying, uh, Herman, thanks for, uh, you know, congratulations. And, of course, I owe all of my success to the radio show. <laughs> That's hilarious. And I- I'll tell you, when you, st- when you started to say that you're a play-by-play, I got kind of a shiver saying, oh, my gosh, I'm, you're much more experienced at broadcasting than I am. So I need to tighten this well, up a little bit. I don't, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. But I tell you, I'm really just to show you, and we'll probably get to this, how important relationships are. To this day, I'm on the board of the Center of Leadership and Ethics, which is sponsored by Coach K at the Fuqua School at Duke University, where two yeah. of my sons graduated from Fuqua School. 
And we we had something similar to this about two weeks ago. We've got another mm-hmm. event next week. So, you know, I'm there last week and, you know, it's a who's who, the owner of the, the Mets, the owner of the uh, 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 Bulls, the GM of the Spurs, not to mention the CEO of GM, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's about mm-hmm. 40 of us. Uh, Janet Hill, who's a good friend. She and I have served on boards together. That's Grant Hill's mom. Uh, she and I were two of the featured speakers where we were talking about this race and how do you do all these things. But anyway, I digress. Coach K, I mean, what a, uh, you know, what a mature, positive role model. I really appreciate that. And again, in, in kind of times of an unrest and general anxiety, I appreciate mature, calm people who have direction and have kind of a force of personality. So excellent stories. And, uh, and as you know, the part of the purpose of, of the Midwatch is to share stories of service, of military service that uh, we can all as veterans relate to. And sometimes those are dramatic and those are, those are great and important. But oftentimes I've found it's the, the day-to-day life that other veterans in other, in, whether it's in your service or others, can really relate to because of the culture and, and what service is. So I, I wanted to know, do you have a story or two to share with us about your 30 years of military service that, that sound like that? Well, you know, anybody that does 30 years in the military, you certainly are going to have those mornings you get up and you don't want to, <laughs> you know, don't want to roll out, but you got to do it. And, right. and I, you know, I, I often tell people in both the uh, public and the private uh, sector environments that I operate in now that probably the hardest thing I have ever done in totality was going to ranger school and successfully completing it because mm-hmm. you're talking about the, the the physical aspect of it and most people can put it with the physical what really gets you is the mental aspect right because yeah. you're certainly asked to do things that uh you know seem impossible and i think what i learned from that is that your limits are not what you think they are and you can reach down further and get something you know you sort of get that in football and basketball and the fourth quarter drills and you got to go out we need this last (laughs) play and all of that but but uh you know certainly your coach is hollering at you is one thing but when you're doing it in an environment where truly people's lives are at risk and for me, it was the closest thing to combat that I came to, even though I w- will tell you, I was in one of the, the last active duty assignment I had was in the office of the Secretary of the Army for financial management. Mm-hmm. And I was a lonely little captain promotable, but I had a lieutenant colonel action job in the Pentagon. And that I was the analyst that for financial purposes analyzed U.S. Army Korea Southcom, Westcom, and I was the person that they had to come through me to, you know, kind of if there were unfinanced requirements, those types of things. Mm-hmm. And uh, one story I have is we all remember back in the late 80s, Noriega was a big thing down in Panama. Sure. And Southcom, uh, U.S. Army, Southcom was one of the units I supported. And I would, uh, you know, they would always want to invite you out to, you know, not necessarily wine and dine you, but treat you and say, this is what we need. And when I send you this note, you know, this is what we're talking about. This is the project we're trying to get done. Yep. And I was actually in Panama. I made a Central America 
South America, I should say, uh, tour there. And I was in Panama the week before the overthrow of Noriega. And the most harrowing part of that is as I watched on the news, the Marriott Hotel where I stayed was just bombarded with fire and everything else. And obviously, as we all know, all of this information is compartmentalized on a need to know. And it wasn't like they said, hey, we're not going to have anybody go to, you know, if they had put on restrictions or whatever, there would have been an indication that something was going to happen. And uh, in this instance, you know, I missed by a week of, you know, possibly being in that in, in that hotel. And and I will never have stories that will uh, rival. Two of my sons, Dan, also went to West Point. Uh, my oldest son, Herman Jr., mm-hmm. is strapping airborne ranger infantry guy. He had uh, three tours, uh, three tours overseas. He went to Iraq where he, you know, had one of his soldiers you know, um, he lost two soldiers, but one of them that lost his leg, uh, you know, he was like five uh, kilometers behind him and he had to sit there and hold this kid until, you know, the medevac helicopter came in and this kid lost both of his legs. And I'll never forget, my son has called me twice to quote unquote, use my contacts to help him with things. One One of his soldiers needed to have lead so he thought uh, the guy happened to be married to two people, but nobody mm-hmm. knew that at the time. <laughs> but, <laughs> That's a whole different story. <laughs> yeah, different story. And uh, his commander was General Austin, who's uh, Lloyd Austin, who's a, a, a good dear friend of mine. And my son just called. He was just, you know, this soldier had done so much for him. He wanted to do something for him. And and I actually followed up with General Austin. And General Austin, just did, uh, a, a scholar and a gentleman, you know, said, hey, Herman, there are always two sides. Let's check into it. But anyway, yeah. but my son needed me there. I was there. And then the second thing was when this Lieutenant Nick was medevac to Walter Reed, and he asked us to go over and see him. And two of my sons, Jonathan, who also went to West Point, and Nathaniel, and my wife, Iris, we all went over. And Nick was from Ohio, and he, you know his family had certainly supported him at West Point. He went to West Point as well. Uh, very smart kid, <clears throat> was uh, going infantry, and then he was going to go to med school after spending two years in the infantry. And we went in to meet his parents, and, and you know, I said, well, you know, I'm Herman Bowles, you know, my son was your son's company commander and you know for you that means a lot dan right because you know hey, right. that's the guy that looks after my son but for them i just got a blank stare and i'm like <laughs> you know what these people don't know anything about the military <laughs> whatsoever and uh i'm going to tell you i had to put on a hazmat suit you know for for uh, controlled germs and things yep. and, and i went in the room to see him and I'm going to tell you, 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 you talk about your heart lumps. You go in and you basically see a bed that's made up and there's nothing down with the lower, just yep. the upper torso is there. And he was, you know, on drugs, he was enough, but, you know, they let me go in and he knew that I was Herman's dad and I was there mm-hmm. representing Herman to see him. Uh, but I got to tell you, Dan, that was uh, that was a growing, growing situation for me to to see the impact of, you know, what these young men and women who were prepared as you and I both were as well. Right. If called, we served, yep. and, 
you know, just so happened, uh, I never watch. had to go into the, uh, to, to the, to, to, to combat, but, uh, both of my boys, Herman, I told you did three combat tours, two company commands in, uh, Afghanistan and, in and, and, combat. And then Jonathan was in Kuwait, as you know, that force is sitting there as a yep. rated force with the right. ready to go. And he, uh, he, he did not have to actually fire his weapon, but you know he was there ready to to give all as well. So, so it's it, it's a you know we are a military family. As I told you, my wife retired as a lieutenant colonel from reserves. Herman's on active duty. Uh, matter of fact, he just signed out of uh, Fort Benning this morning. He's headed to Chicago. He's going to work. They needed some smart young people with an MBA. Mm-hmm. that also understood the army and he's going to work with the army's advertising agency in Chicago for the next two years. Awesome. And Jonathan, Jonathan uh, was medically retired. So he's captain retired. Uh, to do, mm-hmm. And Jonathan was a football player at West Point as well. He had much more notoriety than I did. He was the yeah, punter yeah. for a couple of years and went to a couple of bowl games. So it was just a fantastic career for him. And I must admit, I went vicariously through him. Uh, as we travel the country, watching that team play, uh, those teams play, I should say. But Jonathan also went to Fuqua School, and he's now down in Dallas with Microsoft, where he is a uh, sales rep, a sales executive, account, account executive. And then my third son, Nathaniel, all of them played college sports. Uh, mm-hmm. And Herman played lacrosse at West Point. Jonathan, obviously, football at West Point. Oh, and Nathaniel, Nathaniel played football and track at Earlham College, a uh, small school in Richmond, Indiana. Mm-hmm. And he now works for Sodexo as a uh, project manager. So, Congratulations and, and really credit to you and, and your wife. You continue the tradition of very accomplished families, right? <laughs> you, you come from one yourself and now you've uh, continued that tradition. Do you, you may have already really shared it in, in that story. Do you have any, any further thoughts on seeing military service through your your children's lives right my uh, my my youngest spent four years in the marine corps uh, one of my daughters spent a brief time uh, in the navy what were your thoughts as you were experiencing their own military service knowing your own background any thoughts there yeah well i gotta tell you when herman first went to iraq for the first time he flew into country on his birthday which mm-hmm. is december 4th and, you know, he finished West Point, went to, you know, went to Ranger School, went to Airborne School and went to his unit and late November right after Thanksgiving, you know, they, they deployed over. And that was one of those times, Dan, where you were there and you just say, why can't this be me instead of him? Right. As right. he's going into, and I can only imagine, and perhaps you've been in those cold planes, you know, <laughs> on a practice deployment, ready to go. It's noisy, it's cold, and people are, you know, you're thinking everything in your world, what's going to happen yeah. when we hit the drop zone, whatever. I can only imagine for him, and it was a, it was a, uh, an uncomfortable feeling. Nothing I could do about it. But then, as he came back, uh, you know, so successful and willing to do what he did, you're just so proud of them. So right. on the one hand, you want them to do things that are going to make them better people. 
And with that comes some risk, right? I mean, there's a risk when we walk out of our house today that somebody loses control of their car or something. So there are all kinds of things that can happen. You just gotta, you can't live your life totally in a defensive stance. So, so I'm, I was proud of them for choosing to do it. However, as they get on that plane and they go into that war zone, which both of them did, you know, as a parent, you're like, you know, oh my gosh, what have I done here? You know, have I done something? And <laughs> if something happens here and here they were, yeah. you know, perhaps following a step or a process that I took and, you know, here I am 35 years later, you know, walking around, everything's okay. Uh, my wife might question whether everything's okay upstairs, <laughs> but anyway, uh, and, and you just, you go through, you go through that, you know, did I lead them into something that is, you know, not in their best interest. And, and again, obviously they were young men when they made that decision, but as they became adults, they understood what they signed up for. And, right. you know, we right. have a sense of beauty and honor in our, in our family and if called, we're going to serve. I hear you. I won't go into it too much, but when on my son's first deployment, knowing that he was going into Iraq, I, I wasn't able to, you know, say it out loud because I knew I'd be an emotional mess, but I wrote a letter yep. to him and said, this is my thoughts on what, you know, you're going to face. And see, almost, uh, I'm misting up now to say it, but it was, uh, yeah. you know, so, so emotional to give well, permission. You, you, you know, you know exactly what I'm talking about, Dan. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> moment there to collect myself. <laughs> the, uh, I, I truly do appreciate. Oh, one, one more thing I thought of when you were speaking of going to visit somebody from your son's uh, company who had, you know, lost, lost limbs. And it's funny when you said that about the family who maybe didn't fully understand the bond that service members have. It's one thing to lead in the business workplace and it's important and, and all of that. But when you lead in the military, there's much more of a family it's, it's much more of a family and it's the, a leader, it's incumbent upon the leader to take care of their people. Right. And that's something that doesn't always very rarely exists. In, yeah. In I, I, I got to tell you, I, 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 I try to emulate that. And obviously you and I have, you know, been through that and we know what it is. The fact that the family is really an extension of the uh, yes. service member. And that's not, the norm in the corporate world. It's just not, you know, people are focused on getting the work done and let's go to the next day. And I'm not saying they don't care. I think right. they care, but the, the depth of it and the really understanding and the true empathy. And I notice I didn't say sympathy, the empathy right. of uh, knowing what that's about and uh, being on a team. So uh, those are the things that you miss uh, from the military. I was just going to say that in all of the things that people end up missing, and a lot of times people can't put it into words, that's definitely a part of it. The feeling of being taken care of and the expectation to care, to take care of others. Uh, mm -hmm. Really, really great stuff. And I appreciate you sharing that all uh, and certainly want to be respectful of time and all that. So we're coming towards the end of the show, but I wanted to dedicate some time here specifically to maybe what you talked about first. If you, if that is the case, if you want to talk about that some, but really this is about where, what, what kind of keeps you busy on a day-to-day -day basis and what you're passionate about, and then maybe tying those together with your service. Is there something that brings those together? So uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you do kind of on a day-to-day -day basis for Jones Lang LaSalle 
and the things that you're most passionate about. Uh, and definitely, I would love to talk if you'd like to give us some perspective on the, the issues in race that we're all facing now. Yeah. Well, I think my uh, passion comes from interacting with people. I'm a people person. So in my 30 plus years of JLL, I took a sabbatical, so to speak, uh, in 1999. I went out and uh, worked for a, a large uh, Fannie Mae company. I actually started a couple of companies and uh, my partners were SunTrust and Goldman Sachs. I mm -hmm. sold those companies and did reasonably well. And the entire time I stayed associated with JLL because I was a, a outside board member on the Americas and you know, stayed with it. And I founded the Public Institutions Group here at J JLL. Um, so <laughs> of which was, I'm a part. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was just uh, right. It was, you know, me and an idea. And at the time, you know, we were not organized the way we are now. And I got to tell you, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. The, the faint of heart would have given up and said, you know, I'm not going to do this. But I uh, had some, you know, great relationships. I'm, I'm very relationship oriented. And mm -hmm. with that, I like to tell people there's a difference between networking and connecting. Most people think of networking and networking is good. And it also has a quid pro quo, right? I'm going to right. do this for Dan because I can get this. Yep. And my basis is on connecting. And when I connect with someone, I'm going to do something for you without regard to what I'm going to get in return. And that's been my mantra for my entire life going back from high school where I told you, you know, this high school I went to was 15, maybe 20% African-American black. And, you know, I'm president of student council. Well, if you do your math, I had to get some cross votes <laughs> to make that happen. <laughs> and again, this was in the early seventies and, you know, it wasn't like I was trying to be a politician or whatever. I just treat people that way. And that, that's what you expect. So, so my passion is around being innovative, being relationship oriented and it goes very well into you know what i've done here at jll again building pi into you know probably the first vertical it was the first vertical specialty real estate uh group that we had here at jll and i had some sleepless nights putting it together and some frustration to be imagine. honest with you but it's been a uh, phenomenal success and you know i've certainly reaped uh, some of the awards. I can tell you, I started a company outside of JLL. I started one inside JLL. When you started outside of JLL, it's successful. You reap a little more, but that's a different story. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, so, so having said that, and the role that I do now, I tell people as vice chairman, uh, I'm not in a group, so I'm agnostic. My job is to take care of our clients. I'm externally focused uh, probably 80% of my time, Dan. I spend a lot of time certainly, uh, you know, helping to mentor people internally. The good news when I ran PI, you know, I had budgets and people and personnel and all these things you got to do. And now I am able to truly focus on value adds. For example, I senior person on some of our largest accounts to include Microsoft and Kaiser and State of Tennessee. And uh, amongst others, I probably have 40 to 50 clients that I work with on a, on a regular basis. And I'm fortunate to be able to bring in probably anywhere between 15 to 20 new opportunities for the firm a year. I shouldn't say opportunities, relationships. Right, right. And I work with the teams and um, 
help them win. Uh, I'm fortunate with, uh, you know, I'm on the board at West Point. That's certainly a, a phenomenal uh, opportunity. I'm one of the governors of the American Red Cross. So that's why I get back to earlier, why I think relationships are so important. So I help our teams win, and then I help maintain relationships. Fantastic. No, and we're coming to the end here. If you would like to, I would love to hear any perspective that you've been able to provide on the kind of the strife and the difficulties we're facing now. Is that something you'd like to, to speak on for a moment? Oh, I'd, be, I'd more, be more than happy about it. So we have a concepts of equity and equality, okay? And equality is everybody gets treated well. Equity is, uh, for me as a former, I taught economics at West Point. It's an economic concept. So if you think of it right now, to put some things in perspective, black income is approximately 60% of what whites make, okay? So, you know, that's pretty significant. Right. But when you get to net worth, Black net worth on average is 10% of what whites make. You say, wow, 10% versus 60%. Why is that that way? Well, it goes back to you know, everything from Reconstruction to the Crow Law, the, the discrimination that took place. And you think of it starting with sharecropping, where people never really had an opportunity to own a home because a lot of that wealth that whites have in the country is made up of the, the equity that's in their home. So that's the equity part I talked about. And then you have the opportunity from there saying, well, if you've got wealth, you're able to do things for your kids and you're able to perpetuate by getting them in the Girl Scouts, the Boy Scouts, the Little League and leadership in high school and they go to college and they keep that process going. Well, think about what happened with redlining Okay, and redlining means that uh, listeners that don't know, back in the 50s and 60s, 40s, 50s, 60s, you had restricted covenants where you could not sell your home to a Jew or a black person. So right. even if you had the, the, the economic well-being, you couldn't do it. So as a result of that, blacks were corralled into, you know, with the government. And I'd say this was on the federal, state, and local government was institutional racism by herding people into projects. Well, let's build these great projects that they'll, they'll never own, but we're gonna put people here. And then you do that without the education process, right? Brown versus the board. They cannot be separate and equal. So you have the economic shackles, you've got the educational shackles, you've got the social shackles. And then what I'll hear some people say is, well, you know what? It's equal opportunity. So everybody ought to be able to get up on this race and you get on there and we're going to run 100 yards and whoever's at the end of this 100 yards is out front, they win. And that sounds very egalitarian, sounds very meritocracy. Uh, but you think about it with the shackles that I just explained to you that has been the result of institutional and individual racism, uh, you, you, things are not going to be equal. And when you think about the rioting that's going on or some of the rioting that went on, I'm, I'm, I'm totally opposed to it. At the same time, why do you have a situation like that? Because right. you have individuals that you put into a corner, and as a result, they're not going to win no matter what they do. So, you know, what's the difference between the Boston Tea Party and some of the things that are going on now in reality when you look at it, right? Mm -hmm. So it was a protest against 
what was perceived to be totalitarian rule. And to do a difference, we're going to do something that is, you know, aggressive. violent, I should say, aggressive, right? Yep. So yep. I don't know, Dan, if I'm sitting here talking to you as a graduate of West Point and Harvard and even a quarterback at Coffee High School in 1973, if we don't have the events that occurred in 1968. Yeah. Okay. And I'm talking about the riots and things yeah. because people, why is it that all of a sudden corporate America is going back and said, you know what, maybe we haven't been treating our black employees right. Let's take a look at that. Now, why didn't this occur last year? Because there wasn't an impetus for it to occur last year. Mm-hmm. Okay. It takes, unfortunately, uh, a crisis to make those who have be more concerned about those who do not have. And, and that's the context of which we're dealing with. And, you know, the things that I'm involved with, for example, on on corporate boards, I'm in boardrooms and I'm able to ask some pretty penetrating questions. Mm -hmm. And asking those questions and then tying management to be accountable for doing it. Uh, You know, I tell people all the time, I went to Harvard Business School and they teach you there, if you don't measure it, you can't manage it. Right. And they teach you how to do project management to say we're going to have intermediate objectives, et cetera, et cetera. But for some reason in America, we haven't done that on race. We just say it's too hard. And then when there's not and when there's not accountability and there's not the question, we we go on because it's a very uncomfortable subject. And 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 here's the issue, Dan. If I ask someone if they're racist, they'll say, of course, I'm not racist. You know, I've got a black friend. If I ask them, do they think they have unconscious bias? I'll say, not really, but maybe. Then I'll say, well, if unconscious bias, by definition, is you don't know you have it, okay? (laughs) And then your unconscious bias could very well be perceived in reality be racist. Yeah. So you, you've got this dilemma there that, uh, you know, what, what any, anything to find a problem, and I certainly haven't been an alcoholic, but I understand the first thing they do, and that's their seven-step process, is you have to accept the fact that you have an issue. Right. And if we don't have a nation, and as individuals, we don't accept the fact that we have an issue, we're not going to solve the problem, because there's nothing to solve. So... I'm hopeful in terms of going forward. And one of the things that makes me hopeful is if you look out and you see the broad representation of the people that are out, you know, protesting and walking and being vocal about going on, you know, these aren't just, uh, you know, 21 year old black kids out there. These are, uh, you know, a wide swath of America and the world. Okay. What's going on? You know, you've got people all over the world that are saying, This is not right, and we've got to do something about it. So, and, and, you know, everything from the statues in the military, which is a big one. I was so proud to see the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs come out uh, yep. last week and actually go against his commander-in-chief and say, hey, look, I got 40% of my force is uh, made up of minorities, mm-hmm. and you're telling them to go to a base that's named after someone that, you know, kept their forefathers, you know, suppressed. So yeah. how, do, how, do, how do I explain that? There are good people on both sides. So what can I say? I hear everything that you say. And I, I, uh, I've aspired to approach this with humility and wanting to be open 
to points of view from from everyone. And and maybe the one follow up question that I might have is if there's someone out there who looks at the difficulty and is is feeling like confused, doesn't know how to approach it or something, what would be the introduction like kind of what would be the introduction question or, or statement to that person to begin them to understand or to start them on the road to understand the perspective of those who are reacting as strongly as this? That's a poorly worded question. Uh, trying to really say. Oh, I, I think I think what you're asking and, and tell me if I'm wrong. What about the white people out there that do not understand what is going on because they're looking at it from their perspective of this is a great country and we ought to take care of our neighborhoods instead of burning them down. Is that what you're asking? Uh, a, a great por- portion. The only thing I would add is there will certainly be other variations of this, some not so acute. Anytime somebody doesn't understand, in this case, it's it's very acute and right in front of us. Mm-hmm. But so yes, you can answer it that way because that's going to answer the broader question of when I when I don't understand something, how should I approach that, or what's the introductory introduction to understanding? Well, you and I are both business people, and we know that one of the things that we do on a daily basis, even if you're married, right, one of the days you do on a daily basis is you negotiate, mm-hmm. and in order to be good at negotiating, what you generally have to do is understand the perspective that your antagonist is looking at the issue. Yeah. So what yeah. I would say is that, you know, you must walk or see things through the eyes. And, you know, from our military, we always do the red team, right? So what, what is yeah. the enemy thinking and how are they looking at this? And I'm not, I don't want to make this enemy so much protagonist and antagonist, sure. but sure. when you have different perspectives, the idea is to say, put yourself in those shoes. I've told the story that I told you about the sharecropping and mm-hmm. the institutional racism. And I've had so many people, primarily white people said, you know, I never thought of it like that. You know, yeah. I get up every morning and I try my best and I do things and, and, you know, I see all of this stuff and I say, well, why aren't they doing what I'm doing? And, and that, you know, that is one very, very simple perspective, a way to do it. So what I would say is put yourself in the shoes of the person on the other side of the table. Definitely agree. And right and wrong literally doesn't matter because someone's perspective is what is shaping how they are engaging. So you need to understand their perspective, whether or not you agree with it or, and it doesn't, that, I'm not saying that to apply to this or anything, but at least do, do the right thing and understand where somebody's coming from before you make any judgment. One super quick last follow-up. In a nutshell, what do you think the parallel is in what you are passionate about today to your military service? Is there a, is there a shining example of a parallel between those two things? I think when you say anything about people, it comes down to leadership, right? Mm-hmm. And I define leadership as the ability to influence a group to accomplish a common goal. So what that means in the military, obviously, we've got the hill to take. We've got people with individual accountabilities and responsibilities to do their job. We must be a well-tuned uh, machine, and we must coordinate and work effectively together. And as I take that analogy and put it into kind of what I do and what I'm passionate about, I love to win. 
I love putting teams together. And you know all these teams where, uh, for example, at Microsoft, I've got the senior relationship there with the senior people in your organization, same at Lowe's, et cetera, et cetera. But I tell the teams I work with, hey, look, you know, I'm vice chairman and yeah, I'm the senior person on this account. But you know what I want to do? I want to take that pyramid. I want to turn it upside down. Yeah, okay. Yeah. You're there every day. You understand what needs to be done. And what I want you to do is to be mature enough, smart enough, emotional quotient enough to mm -hmm. say, what do I need from Herman and how can Herman help me? Because I don't want to just come in and say, hey, these are the things I can do. I can call such and such. And that may not be what you need. So, uh, you know, I'm probably working again with 40 or 50 teams across the uh, firm at any one time and have a relationship with them where they keep me apprised. And, and I've got one rule I love, and that is no surprises because <laughs> I don't like putting toothpaste back in a tube. Okay. So, so and I, and from time to time, I have that occur. And I got to tell you, 10 years ago, I would say, oh, okay, let me try whatever. I'm a little more vocal about that because I tell people, I don't, okay, right? <laughs> I'm here to work with you. Okay. Make me a full member of your team. That means you show me the respect, you keep me updated and don't just call me when you need something. And that's that connecting versus networking that I talked about earlier. I, I tell you, I've got enough to do <laughs> with, uh, you know, between, you know, starting with my family and work and my uh, philanthropic uh, desires, I've got enough to do. And if I'm going to, you know, work with people, I'm going to work with people that I enjoy working with, that I will respect them as much as they respect me. Outstanding. Truly, I, I truly appreciate the deep perspective that you've talked about today. Re really fantastic stuff. So as we wrap up, uh, if you would stay, stay on the phone after we end the show here so we can wrap up offline. But thank you so much for uh, for taking time out of your busy day. I know that the audience will will get a lot out of it, and truly appreciate the uh, appreciate the time, Herman. Thank you, Dan. Yes, sir. And uh, hey, audience, please continue to share the show with coworkers and friends. And I appreciate everything you're doing. We'll be back again next week with another episode. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Jones Lang LaSalle's The Midwatch Podcast with Dan Ettinger. Look for us on the web and social media, and please share with friends and family. Thanks for your support. Like us wherever you listen to this podcast and stay tuned.